Well, if you would please open to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 12. We're going to be looking at this one verse, verse 14. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's found on page 948. Romans 12, verse 14. And we're continuing this uh, evening worship series looking at just a single verse from a very dense chapter. And this dense chapter gives us the marks of a true Christian. And as a reminder, the book of Romans, in this Paul spends 11 chapters really laying out the gospel, giving us a systematic approach really to the bad news, the problem that we have. And our problem is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. This is the bad news. And then Paul gives us the good news. Where death comes through Adam, eternal life comes through Jesus Christ. And this union with Christ, this righteousness of Christ is applied to us by faith alone. It's offered to us through grace alone. It's received by faith alone. And the object of that faith is nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because of this regeneration, this by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we are free. We are freed from the power of sin. We became, we, we, we become dead to sin. We become alive to God. And we're perfectly secure. And Paul ends chapter 8 with this amazing reality where he says in, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 38, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rules, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul ends this, this doctrine section in Romans, in Romans chapter 11, with this amazing doxology, where he says, Oh, the depths and the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 gives us the so what. The so what of the gospel. What is the, what is the, the response that we have to these amazing truths of the gospel? And it shows us how to put them into practice. And we see how the gospel really impacts our lives. And it, this impact that we see of the gospel is radical. Nothing short than revolutionary. And it's because we become a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has come. And as such, we live a radically different life than we lived before we knew Christ. And that is what we see here in Romans chapter 12. We see the marks, we see the effects of a person who is totally changed. A person who is regenerated into a new creation. And the commands in these verses, they are impossible to fulfill apart from regeneration. And they are impossible, really, to, to totally comprehend for the non-believer. The non-believer, it, it makes no sense whatsoever to the non-believer. Well, today we look at another verse that makes no sense to the unbeliever. And that's verse 14. So our scripture reading, Romans 12, verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to not only understand these words, not only understand what I am preaching now, but Father, give us the grace to live them out. Father, to internalize these words, that they will become part of who we are. Father, the truth is we are a new creation. 
we have been changed. The old is gone, the new has come. So, Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will speak through me. By the power of your Holy Spirit that these words will change us, will transform us, and we will be able to live these words for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Any of you fans of, of Star Trek, the old Star Trek? Um, Nathan hates Star Trek. But a, lot of, a, a lot of us who know a little bit better like, uh, like uh, Star Trek. Now, 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 maybe this, I'm not talking about all those spinoffs, this crazy spin I'm talking about the original 1960s cheesy William Shatner. You guys, you guys are familiar with that. Well, there's this one episode. And in this episode, the Enterprise, the crew of the Enterprise, they find themselves again at war with the Klingons. They're mortal enemies, the Klingons. And, and there are many episodes where they have squirmishes with the Klingons. But this, this episode is different. In this episode, the Klingon soldiers are on board the Enterprise, and they're equally numbered with the Enterprise crew. And both sides are equally armed. Instead of having phasers that they normally have, their phasers and their, their modern weapons have all been transformed into these and, into swords and, 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 and axes and just really brutal, old-fashioned, medieval weapons. And it, to make it even worse, whenever a soldier is, is killed in this battle, whether it's a Klingon or a human, they're, they're dead for a few moments, and then they're... Uh, re- uh, resuscitated, they're healed, and they're able to fight again. And both sides in, in this battle are filled with rage and hatred for the other side. And they seem to be locked in this unending battle that, that cannot ever be won or lost, but just continues to produce endless pain, endless misery. And they, they can't even escape it in death, because when they're killed, they simply are healed and come back and have to fight again. Well, Kirk and Spock finally realize what's happening, and they realize that there's this alien life form on the ship. It looks like a a little spotty little energy field on the ship, and it's feeding on their anger. It's feeding on their their hatred and the violence, and they realize that both the Klingons and the the humans are the pawns. They're being exploited by this evil, uh, they're used by this evil alien, and they realize now that the, the Klingons aren't their true enemy. In fact, they realize that the Klingons are just as much of victims as the Enterprise crew is. The real enemy is this alien. So Kirk and Spock, they manage to speak with the Klingon commander, and they convince him about the existence of this alien. And they realize that the only way they can save themselves from this alien is to cease their fighting. They must lay down their arms. They must end their hostility that they have, their hatred they have for one another, and actually embrace one another as friends. And I think this episode provides a a great illustration of the battle that we see today between Christians and non-Christians in our world. Two weeks ago, you may have remembered, I preached a sermon from Psalm 2 entitled, Because They Hate God. And in this sermon, I gave many illustrations of of attitudes and, and ideologies and actions of unbelievers that really seek to stamp out Christianity. And these actions, as I mentioned, these are motivated by a hatred for God. And they are expressed as a, as a direct, direct hatred and animosity toward us, toward his people. And I do believe that the Lord led me to preach this sermon. But to tell the truth, I wasn't very comfortable preaching it. And those of you in the prayer meetings know that, because I've asked you to pray for me about this, because and, and, I wasn't very comfortable about this sermon, even though I knew the Lord was leading me to, to preach this sermon. I knew this sermon, which, which identified real enemies, true enemies of God and his truth. But I knew that this sermon could easily inspire anger and rage on our part. 
It could easily be seen as a, as a call for us to fight, to demand our rights against these ungodly, to, to, to fight the forces of evil, to fight with fire with fire. And I think if that was a takeaway, that would really be a mistake. And it's a mistake that sadly we see far too many Christians make. We get ready for battle. We want to become culture warriors. We're quick to fight against the unbelievers, quick to stand up against unrighteousness, to stand up for God, to seek to destroy his enemies, enemies that we know try to destroy us, who want to destroy us. And if we do this, we play right into Satan's hands. See, Satan is like that alien on the Enterprise who's instigating the hostilities between the humans and the, and the Klingons. The alien was the true enemy. The Klingons were just as much of victims as the humans were. And as believers, our enemy is Satan. Our enemy is not unbelievers. Even the, the unbelievers, even though they hate us, even though they have hostility towards us, they are victims. They are victims that are deceived, deceived by Satan. And the truth is they are our mission field. They are not our enemy. They are our mission field. And our mission is to save them, not to destroy them. They'll, they'll hate us. They'll come out at us. And, and, and oftentimes I will engage with unbelievers on Facebook. And, and my family said, why do you even put up with them? They're so nasty, so arrogant, so hateful to you. They're blind. They can't see. They, they are not the enemy. They are blind. They're being deceived. If they continue on the path they're going on, they're going to spend eternity in hell. I can take a few, a few angry words. If there's even a remote chance that they will hear, a remote chance that they will hear and turn and be saved, I'll take those, those angry words. They really can't hurt me. But our mission is to save them. Our mission is not to destroy them. And this is really a, a much harder mission. So it would be much easier simply to destroy them. It would be much easier to fight them. And this is exactly what so many Christians do, especially when debating with, with unbelievers. And it, it really is easy. I mean, those of you who, who are familiar with some of my interactions with unbelievers, you know that it's real easy to slice them up because we have truth on our side. They don't. We have logic. They don't. It's not hard to destroy their faulty arguments and slice them up. It's not difficult to make them look like complete fools. It's not difficult to derive the unbeliever to despair. We could do it if we want to. But my friends, that is not our goal. Our goal is to save them. Our goal is to draw them to Christ, to show them the beauty of Christ, not how smart we are, not how, how destructive the truth is. We're to show them the love of Christ. We're to show them the grace of Christ. And the truth is they are lost. They are under God's judgment because they are rebels against God. And we do need to gently show them the danger that they're in, the danger of the path that they're on. We need to show them. We can't, we can't hide that fact and just be nice to them and never tell them the bad news. But we never do it gleefully. We never do it. We don't really laugh at their fate. We, we, we don't seek their destruction. We don't seek their humiliation. We seek their salvation. And I know it's hard. It's very hard because they are seeking our destruction. They hate us. They want to get rid of us. They want to hurt us. And when they hate us, it is natural. It is natural for us to want to respond in kind. But you know what? We are not natural. We are supernatural. And that's where Romans 12, 14 comes in. And this verse is completely absurd to the unbeliever. It makes no sense. 
It cannot be done unless they are regenerated. But this is the command given to the believer. In fact, this is the only way that we can achieve our goal. And this is the only way for us not to be used by Satan, not to fall into his trap. Again, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This must be our response. This must be our response if there is any hope for us to achieve our goal. If we are going to see them come into the family of God. If we're going to see them leave the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light. And we see a great illustration of this verse in scripture. An illustration of this verse even before this verse was written. In fact, this verse would not have been written had Paul himself not been the recipient of the blessing, a blessing from one that he had greatly persecuted. So if you please just turn back in your Bibles a few pages to Acts chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 914, uh, 916, Acts 7. And this is a familiar passage. This is the stoning of Stephen. In Acts 7, Stephen is preaching to the Jewish council. And if you remember, Stephen goes through the history of God's people, the history of the Jewish people. And he's talking to them about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Joseph, about Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. And the council's all getting excited. Yeah, these are, these are our guys. We're cheering them on. Yes, these are, these are the patriarchs. These are our peeps. Go. They're all excited. And you see that the, the, as they hear the story, they are identifying with the patriarchs. They see themselves as the good guys in the story. Just as like we always identify ourselves with the hero of the story. But then Stephen masterfully turns the tables on them. In Acts 7.51 and following, Stephen says to the people who are all cheering him on and cheering on, thinking they're the good guys, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. <clears throat> so Stephen basically says to him, you guys are not the good guys. You're the bad guys. And you could imagine, you could imagine that didn't go over very well with these Jewish leaders. We see in verses 54 to the end of the chapter. It says, now when they heard these things, the, the, the Jewish council, they were enraged. Again, whenever they hear the truth, the enemies of God are enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it. They, they literally stopped their ears. They could not handle hearing the truth. And they rushed toward him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And who is the ringleader of this execution, of this mob that murdered righteous Stephen? Well, we had a hint of it in, in verse 58. 
they laid their garments at a, the feet of a young man named Saul. But chapter 8 makes it even clearer. It says that Saul, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this letter that we're reading, approved of his execution. And just in case you might think, well, this was one time event, no mistake. Chapter 8 continues. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you see Saul, he is going after, he is hurting, he's killing, he is imprisoning the believers. Saul greatly persecuted the Christians. He was responsible for the death of Stephen, the first, the first among millions of Christian martyrs, millions of Christian martyrs. But notice that Stephen didn't call for, for God to smite them all. You know, come down with, with judgment. Destroy all of these enemies. Avenge me. And we see this in other places in Scripture, but not here. And this is really, to tell the truth, this is the natural response. This would be a just response. It really would be. It's calling out for God's justice. And there will be a time for that. There will be a time for God's justice. But the Christian here, the Christian knows that this is not the time of justice. This is the time of grace. And as Christians, we are not God's instruments of judgment, as we saw in the Old Testament, when we saw Israel was, the, was the, God's instrument of judgment against the evil. We now, as a church, are instruments of grace. And the Christian indwell with the Holy Spirit. We are enabled. We are given the supernatural ability to respond in the same way that Christ himself Respond. We are able to react the way Christ would react. And we see this in Stephen's last words. Before he was received in glory by the Lord himself, he actually duplicates, says the same exact words that Christ said on the cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And you know what? The Lord didn't. The Lord did not hold this sin against Saul. The Lord answered Stephen's prayers, and he showed great mercy, great mercy on Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. See, Saul was blind. Saul thought he was serving God. He thought he was persecuting heretics. He thought he was defending God's honor. Just as many of the people that we will interact now think that they are defending God's honor against the the evil literalists who who will use the Bible against people and and to hurt people and to hate people by telling them that they are sinners, by telling them they actually are sinners, that that is so evil. They think they are doing God's work. But in reality, what they are doing is they are persecuting Christ's church, just as Saul was doing. And in doing so, they are persecuting Christ himself. As Christ tells Saul in in Acts 9.4, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, when you persecute Christ's church, you are persecuting Christ himself. But Saul was given grace. He was shown the truth. The truth at first that blinded him, but then, then the, the scales fell off of Saul's eyes. <clears throat> and then to, to paraphrase my favorite hymn, Charles Wesley writes, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Paul's chains fell off. His heart was free, and he was able to rise and go and follow the Lord. Amazing love. Amazing love, how can it be? 
And when we are shown such amazing love, how can we demand our rights? How can we fail to show the same type, just a fraction of that love to others? See, isn't God amazing? Isn't it amazing? He doesn't destroy his enemies. And each, every one of us here was his enemy at one point, And he doesn't destroy us. And it's amazing. He takes one of the greatest enemies of the church, Saul of Tarsus, and he makes him the greatest evangelist, the greatest missionary in the history of the church. And the very one, <clears throat> the very one to share this principle, to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. And my friends, think of the impact that we could have. The impact we could have for the kingdom of God if we can internalize this principle. If we could actually bless those who persecute us, bless and not curse them. Think of the many souls who, who will be with us in glory because we refuse to demand justice. Justice that we could, have, that, that was right for us to demand. We, we refuse to demand revenge against those who hate us, who persecute us. But instead, we show them grace. Instead, we show them mercy. Think of the zeal. Think of the mercy that will be shown to others by those to whom we have shown mercy. Think of this, this multiplicative effect that we will have on the kingdom of God, all because we show a supernatural response. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a response that is not natural. But Father, this is what you have given to us through your Holy Spirit. And I pray for every single one of us here, every single one who hears my voice, that we will be able to respond like our Lord did when we face persecution. And we will face persecution. There's no doubt about it. It is very clear in your providence you are allowing the forces of evil to expand mightily. And it's almost like they have been unleashed. But, Father, it is going to give us more of an opportunity. And many, many of your people will be martyred. There is no doubt about that. Many, even in this small church, may be martyred. We do not know what the future holds. But, Father, if you give us the grace to respond this way, you will do amazing supernatural things. You will take those enemies and allow those enemies to be converted, to become our brothers and sisters who will join us on this side. That's the way you work. And it is amazing. And until we get to glory, we may not see the amazingness of it. But, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us the ability to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.